You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Hi, and a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. Good morning. Yes, it's Annie and Kim. Yes. <laughs> on Solidarity Breakfast here, your pol- politics with your Wheaties. You know what I did last night? No. No? <laughs> no, a, I couldn't guess. That, that's a teasing question. I actually went and saw uh, Paul Keating talk. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've never seen him talk, so I was uh, keen to see what he was had to say. But it's quite interesting because uh, what he had to say was, one, he's funny, you know, like as in amusing, which is something you miss, isn't it, from politics these days. But he also was quite um, adamant about China saying that uh, – what, who, do we, who do we think we are telling them what to do, <laughs> which I thought was really uh, interesting. Well, he wanted to take that whole turn towards China and Asia during his... Um, yeah. that, so that was what that was all about. So it's interesting. And later on in the program, Humphrey McQueen's going to investigate China in the last half hour of the show. So that's there you go. Um, I thought it was quite interesting. And it was a packed hall. Apparently it took... 36 hours to sell all the tickets to the uh, recital centre. There was a lot of love for Paul Keating in that room. It was very interesting. People are missing. Um, that people were saying things like, oh, he's so erudite. Uh, he's uh, so interesting. He actually got a point of view. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah, no, there you go. Uh, anyway, uh, we're going to uh, take you to um, the resistance to Trump. He had some interesting things to, be, to say about Trump. He thought that uh, he, he, like Solidarity Breakfast, uh, predicted that Trump would win uh, for a whole range of reasons. Uh, and um, he and he described it as throwing his uh, opponents like rag dolls to the corner, and he was going to throw Hillary Clinton like a rag doll to the corner. <laughs> there was <laughs> a really good sort of picture. But uh, he also said about Trump, like he's obviously a realist because he goes, well, you know, there's a, he focuses on the potential in Trump, you know, in the sense that uh, one, he's decided to be more pally with Russia and more pally with China which are two completely different approaches than the US have taken for quite a considerable amount of time. And he thought, oh, well, you know, you might be able to work with that. But he also talked about, um, he also talked about uh, uh, our government. Uh, how long is it, how long is it uh, that Australia has had a connection with the US? Uh, what is it, 100 years now, he says? What, why, why do they keep taking out the marriage certificate to, to check to see if it's in order, <laughs> which I thought it was really funny. And he, he then said, how many other people are they going to have anything to do with in this side of Asia? We wouldn't be able to get rid of them, he said. You know, like this idea that you have to keep 
you know, bowing and kowtowing is foolish. That was mm. his view. But anyway, enough of that. Uh, the uh, What we're going to do is talk about the, what made me think of it was uh, our piece we've got for the first half hour, which is... Resi- Corey Peterson-Smith talking about the resistance to Trump in the US. That's exactly right. And it's a fascinating piece because it was an eyewitness account. You know, he was there on the ground to a whole range of things that happened uh, leading up to the inauguration and stuff like that. And then it follows up with a little bit of a word from Hayley Presson, who was also one of the American guests to the Marxist 2017. We're going to catch up with the people who are on the walk for West Papua. Uh, Rebecca is uh, going to talk to us about how they're going. It started on the 26th, which is Wednesday, and it finishes tomorrow. And uh, walk for West Papua points out that the distance between Geelong and Footscray is the same as that between West Papua and Australian Territory. That's 73.2 kilometres to a ongoing genocide. Not very far away, but anyway, that's why they're doing their walk. But we'll have a chat to find out what they've done and how, how many communities they've been able to speak to and yeah, I wonder where they are now. They must be somewhere in Lara or something. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. They're, they're going to know that section of uh, Victoria very, very well. Anyway, there you go. Hey, farm. What's someone who studies things under the sea called? Uh, an undersea researcher. Wrong. If you reckon you can do better than farm at Trivia, join the Out of the Blue team for our annual Radiothon fundraiser, Wednesday the 10th of May at Highlander Bar, 6pm. And get your tickets via the Out of the Blue Facebook page or search Out of the Blue on eventbrite.com.au. So you were there. Did did you hear... uh, uh, Curry talk? I did hear Curry talk, but I don't think I heard his, uh, went to his session on the eyewitness account to America on the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, he was in quite a few sessions, so I heard him at the start and I heard him at the wrap up and various other sessions. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, that's right. So Curry Peterson Smith about an eyewitness account to the resistance to Trump. So on the day I arrived in Australia a few days ago, In Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a Muslim woman was attacked while she was returning home from her morning prayers. She went to prayers at 6 a.m., and when she was walking home, a man drove up beside her, started screaming racist things about Muslims, jumped out and started beating her to the ground. She survived to talk about it, and she courageously went to the news media and described it, and she said, he beat me like an animal. And while she did not share her name, and she didn't want to show her face because she wanted to preserve her anonymity. She showed the news media her headscarf, which was striped with blood, because not only was she beaten, but the man stabbed her as well. I start there because, on one hand, obviously, I'm sure it's obvious to the whole world, that we've entered this really bizarre reality in the United States, where the president of the country is picking Twitter battles with Snoop Dogg and Meryl Streep. Amid the kind of absurdity and surrealism that 
was kind of cast over American life, there's a real wave of terror in the country, actually. And it is, of course, affecting the most vulnerable communities. So obviously Muslim Americans, but also women. Right after the election, one of the more popular conversations on social media among women were how to get an IUD, which is um, a form of birth control, a form of long-term birth control. There's such fear that not only will abortion be outlawed, it's already been, the, the right to abortion and access to it has been whittled away year after year in the U.S., and it's so difficult to access, so unaffordable and so on. But now there's a fear that it will be made illegal altogether. But also contraception itself is on the chopping block from the right wing, which is quite emboldened. And, of course, there is terror among immigrants. And so one example of why is in February there was actually all across the country in seven different states a nationwide sweep uh, by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, known as ICE by their acronym, in seven different states. And it included not only knocks on the door and raids on workplaces, but also raids on a shopping mall in Austin, Texas, where they approached immigrants and asked for their papers, or where they set up checkpoints uh, on the road in North Carolina, stopping people who were brown and asked for their papers and so on. Now, to be clear, undocumented migrants, of which there are 11 million in the United States, for them to be living in terror is nothing new. And in fact, the previous administration, the Obama administration, deported more immigrants than any other president in U.S. history, close to 3 million. On one hand, this kind of terror is not new. It's very much been a feature of American life for a long time. And yet, there's a difference in how it's being put forward because when Obama ramped up his deportation machine, he did that on one hand and then said something different, which is that oh, we're not going after all immigrants, just the bad immigrants, just the criminals. And for the so-called good immigrants, we'll create a path to citizenship. Now, of course, this is a lie on many levels, but it is something different. When the president of the country, in his campaign, calls all Mexicans rapists, quite a charge from anyone, but particularly given who it's coming from, an unabashed sexual predator. He made clear from the beginning that there's going to be a new wave of assault on migrants, and that is playing out all across the country. That is undoubtedly one of the kind of dimensions of life in the U.S. at the moment. But there's another side to it as well, which is the emergence of a resistance. One of the things that I want to communicate is that while on one hand we have entered a new era under Trump, it is not altogether divorced from the era that preceded it, but rather is shaped by it as well. And so I want to tell a little story about going to Washington, D.C. The Women's March, which was incredible, one of, if not the largest days of protest in U.S. history. Four million people were mobilized nationwide. Obviously a, a huge march in Washington, but also marches in cities across the country as well. This was on January 21st, the day after the presidential inauguration. I was also there for the inauguration itself, not the inauguration, <laughs> to protest the inauguration. Um, and it was a smaller protest and kind of like a weirder protest. Uh, and I'll explain why. The, the inauguration, there's like the swearing in ceremony and then there's this, um, you know, the president drives in his motorcade down this parade route. And that's where the protest takes place, along the parade route. The state had set up these military checkpoints to be able to get to the parade route. So they're kind of 
harassing and patting down everybody who's going into the parade route and so on. And the, the weird thing is people who are going to protest the inauguration and people who are going to attend it, to celebrate it, were like in the same line at the same checkpoint. So we far outnumbered them. There were like, you know, thousands of us. And then you could recognize, I mean, for some reason it was unclear. They were wearing their stupid Make America Great Again red hats. And so you'd see like, there's like thousands of us. We, we waited for hours, you know, uh, at this checkpoint and then kind of sprinkled among the protesters are in groups of, you know, two or three or four are these Trump supporters. In Australia, you have a number of terrifying animals. In the U.S., we have bears, and there's this kind of uh, conventional wisdom that, like, if you're in the woods, like, if you don't bother them, they won't bother you. And that was, like, what it was like with the Trump people. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, you know, there were very few of them, and it was like, we just kind of, we're not interacting with each other, even though we're all waiting in line, you know, for hours at this checkpoint. But occasionally... You know, a handful of them, men, you know, their hats, start to, USA, USA. And whenever it happened, the response was immediate, it was spontaneous, and it was hundreds of people. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. There's a lot there, right? I mean, what does it mean that when somebody's raising a chant, it's a celebration of the United States. The response is pointing to one of the most shameful aspects of the United States. The centuries-long and persistent oppression of black people, which has been catapulted back into the mainstream because of the resistance led by Black Lives Matter, right? And that, that is the response, that no, we're not proud of this country, actually. So many people who've been going to these protests over the past few months, it's the first protest they've ever been to. But even if you haven't been to a protest before in your life, for the past few years you've been watching protests on television, in your town, people disrupting traffic, shutting down downtowns, uh, chanting Black Lives Matter, and so on. In fact, uh, you know, the, the next day, the Women's March, Every train going into downtown Washington, D.C. was completely packed. Every station was totally packed as well. Uh, when we got off the train to actually go to the protests, it took an hour to get out of the train station because there were just so many people and because the D.C. subway system made us all pay. Because it took so long to get out, and we were all there to... 100% of the people present at the train station were there to protest. We just started protesting in the train station. Right? <laughs> and people already had their signs and so on. And the most popular chant was Black Lives Matter. Now, there was a significant number of black people present, but the majority of the people there were not black. That is, there has been a profound impact on the population because of this movement, which is so important because... You know, not only in Black Lives Matter, but in the struggle for immigrant rights, the, the various other struggles for LGBTQ rights and so on, you know, we'll, we'll be fighting and there'll be these setbacks and the protests will stop. And activists always wonder, well, is it over? Was this for nothing? And what we see now is that it wasn't for nothing. These things were shaping what is now an emerging resistance under Trump. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. 
Yeah, and we've just been uh, listening to Corey Peterson-Smith talking about the uh, resistance to Trump. And it was fascinating yes. to, to hear it uh, on the ground, what, what it feels like to uh, actually be uh, the practicalities. Uh, they're a funny crew, aren't they, the Americans? It's, yes, and Curie said, not in that session, but in a number of others, probably at the end of that session as well, that he is eagerly awaiting the Australian resistance. Since <laughs> he thinks we should be allies since our ruling classes are allies. Yeah, well, that's right. He's <laughs> completely correct. Anyway, um, uh, one of the other people who was who was actually there at the same time as um, Corey and uh, speaking her mind about it, she she comes from New York. She's a she's part of uh, a resistance cell in New York, and her name is Haley Pesson, and uh, she's a person that punches above her weight. That's what I reckon. Mm. I spoke a bit last night, and Curry obviously just spoke very well to what's produced the general polarization in the U.S., um, but also character resistance that's emerged in the wake of Trump. And I tried to get into why this particular outbreak of resistance is kind of, you know, qualitatively different than what we've seen in the past, um, partly because... We've seen movements. It's not like we haven't seen resistance to the horrible conditions um, that exist throughout U.S. society in the form of Occupy Wall Street against the enormous inequality that exists, against you know the police violence against people of color and others. But these movements, you know, as important as they were in their ideological impact, they ultimately turned out to be short-lived or sporadic or weren't able to overcome the challenge of having the level of organization and sustained activity that it would take to bring masses of people beyond a layer of committed activists into the fold. Um, I think that what's different today is that well beyond those layers is a mass of people who are, you know, for the first time expressing this (coughs) polarization that really, you know, predates Trump, but is now manifesting in an open resistance. So if you look at the Women's March, so many of the people who came out to that were on their first protest ever. And it wasn't organized by people who, you know, were known organizers or, you know, frankly, you know, it's a bit bizarre. Both Curry and I were there, and we were one of the only organized contingents as the International Socialist Organization. And if you know anything about the U.S. left, we're like... Very, 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 very tiny. So for us to actually be one of the few recognizable contingents with a banner even, because almost everybody else got themselves there by themselves, is I think both you know a good thing. It certainly speaks to um, how widespread the opposition to Trump is and how deep it goes that people actually felt they needed to come out. But the, the opposite of that is also true. It's almost happening despite the disorganization of the U.S. left. And so I think there are, there's some challenges inherent in that. But um, I, I wasn't sure I was going to mention this. Uh, do people know the Pepsi ad with Kendall Jenner? <laughs> okay. Um, so... So just in case you missed the boat, um, this kind of insultingly hilarious ad um, that Pepsi came out with um, to try and replicate something it did in the 70s to kind of bring society together and say, you know, hey, young people drink Pepsi and they also like protesting. So, you know, but they got it miserably wrong. It's like Kendall Jenner handing, you know, um, a uh, Pepsi to a cop in the context of Black Lives Matter and, you know, everybody just stops. It's like, if only we had a Pepsi, then, like, the cops would have stopped, you know, beating the shit out of us. Um, so 
it, it's really ridiculous, um, and it failed miserably and was mocked um, gratuitously. But what is ironic about that, and actually perhaps a positive thing, is that even you know a corporate giant recognizes that it's popular to protest. That's like what's trendy now. Um, so that can't be a bad thing for our side. Um, and I think you know it's it's the other qualitative difference is the default response to all these executive orders that Trump is raining down. It's like what is happens when this you know comes down it's we protest that is how we respond that's actually not been the dominant response you know in the US for decades um and I think it's important because of something that Liz said on the panel last night, which is, you know, even though people are coming into struggle with all kinds of different ideas, some of them are much more liberal, some are angry about Hillary Clinton's laws, some of them are much more disillusioned with Clinton or held their nose because they were afraid of Trump, some think we need a whole new alternative. All these different layers coming into struggle because they're in struggle, are in a position to draw different conclusions than they would have prior to that open struggle about what their own power is, about the nature of the society we live in, about the connections between different fights, whether it's around women's rights or around immigration or around um, the Muslim ban or any number of things. Um, that's really um, an opening for the left that I think we need to you know, really seize on and take seriously for, for being really the biggest opportunity since the 1960s to rebuild the U.S. left. Um, so that said, I think, as I said, this is happening in a context where the left is, you know, not that organized at all um, and really doesn't exist in a super meaningful way, even though it's emerging, and I think there's that potential there. So I want to get into some of the challenges posed by that. Um, one thing that I think Curry pointed to that is almost lost, I think, on a lot of people just because of how... I mean, incompetent Trump's administration appears and how chaotic the rollout is, is that he actually does have an agenda. And the fact of the matter is, you know, part of it is diverging from the U.S. ruling class in that it's um, this, you know, economic nationalism, this protectionist agenda, this America first agenda that's propped up by scapegoating different groups of people within the U.S. Um, and blaming them for the crisis. This is sort of the populist side of his agenda. But his actual agenda at home, for all the rhetoric he's used, is more neoliberalism. It's more of the same. Um, and I think that that's important because really, as much as the U.S. ruling class may disagree with it, as much as people within his own cabinet have divisions within them, there are things that they absolutely do agree on. And um, the question, I think, of whether Trump would be able to drive through a lot of his policies, there's a question on the, you know, on the left or debates about, you know, how, how, how much would he be reined in, essentially, by the U.S. ruling class? And in some ways, so far, the answer has actually been not much. Um, thank you. Um, so, for, for instance, if we look at um, uh, all of the really vile candidates or the vile nominations that he's put through, Jeff Sessions, somebody who couldn't even become a U.S. judge because he was considered so racist before, is now you know, a top person in his cabinet, Steve Bannon, um, you know, uh, uh, the former head of Breitbart News, which is you know, a bastion of the alt-right, which is just another you know, kind of rebranding of white supremacist and misogynistic views. I mean, these are the people in his cabinet um, and, uh, you know, the Democrats even, the so-called opposition that was supposed to put up such a fight, it's like they, they, they suddenly disappeared. Suddenly it was time to just rally behind Trump and not, not do anything 
meaningful. Um, they might have spoken out, you know, um, about their, their concerns about Ben Carson's lack of experience or something, and not actually about the substantive issue of what he wanted to do to housing um, in a country that already has such a, a, a crisis of, of um, for, uh, home affordability and, and a lack of public housing that's affordable for most people. So, um, it wasn't a particularly uh, vicious resistance. And even more so now um, under Syria. I mean, that's absolutely inexcusable. It's kind of amazing how quickly people who were literally calling a fa uh, Trump a fascist before, now he's suddenly rebranded as a humanitarian because he's bombing Syria. I mean, it's absolutely insane. Um, and I think there's some, uh, some statistic about how I think there are about 48 op-eds in prominent newspapers, only one of which was even critical of the bombing of Syria, and that's across both liberal and conservative papers, all of them, uh, you know, doing what the ruling class does best, which is unite around war. Um, <coughs> and I, there are contradictions in Trump's agenda, things that he hasn't been able to, you know, roll out as smoothly. So, for instance, you know, his, uh, he was supposed to overturn Obamacare, which it's kind of remarkable. That was the Republicans' kind of mainstay for years, that they were going to overturn Obamacare um, and implement a much more watered-down um, and even more privatized, if that's possible, health care system. So as critical as people might be of Obamacare, the impression of a lot of people was that this was just wild wildly unpopular, um, and the Republicans were actually divided on whether to implement an even worse bill than what Trump actually proposed, um, because it was apparently too much of a concession to Obamacare, um, or to, to scrap it altogether, and he lost that partly because of the division and partly because people were gathering in town halls all over the country to voice their opposition and their fear that they'd be losing any semblance of protection um, when it's so hard to get health coverage in the first place. Um, but even with all of those things that have sort of created stalemates, I think it's important to recognize that Trump has gotten away with quite a bit of his agenda. It's not as if he hasn't been able to impose um, quite a bit of that, even in the context of resistance, even in the context of not having a popular mandate. Um, I think that the very first story that Karee mentioned about um, the Muslim woman who was attacked is one part of that story, that he's emboldened, you know, not only the right wing to, at the legislative level, wage these vicious attacks. I mean, there's Republican senators calling women hosts as an excuse not to allow them to have abortion. I mean, it's like not even hidden misogyny. It's it's, it's so blatant um, and out in the open. Um, there are a number of laws that have been direct responses to the protests, and they actually predate Trump. They actually have been um, a response initially to Black Lives Matter and to um, the protests around Standing Rock in opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline. But Trump is giving a green light to all of these legislators who are trying to pass these laws to go for it, that will try to do it at the national level. He's done that since the beginning of his campaign. Um, and I, I think the most egregious example was in North Dakota. I believe it failed, but that this was even on the uh, in the realm of possibility gives you a sense of where things are. There was a bill that was uh, going to make it legal if you um, are on a highway and people are protesting. If you drove by and accidentally hit a protester, you would not be charged. So that's the extent of um, what we're up against in terms of the crackdown we can expect from Trump. There's also been several um, 
uh, you know, not just a, a random targeting of immigrants, although that's been true as well to make people very afraid, but there's actually been a specific targeting of the cities that have declared themselves sanctuaries to try and prevent them from resisting um, the raids on immigrants and the deportations, and even on specific activists who are undocumented, having them deported and specifically targeted because they were standing up to deportations. So. All of that obviously is a significant challenge for our side, and I think without the organizational forces, we have to be honest that there are some things that we're going to lose on. There are some battles that it's been possible for us to gain victories around, like rolling back Trump's attempt to push through the Muslim ban, like his attacks on health care. There are possibilities that are open here, but there's also the possibility that we'll lose, and actually Standing Rock is a pretty tragic example of that, um, given that Trump has a, given that to go ahead um, and those you know that resistance hasn't gone away but I think we should be sober about what that actually means in practice um, even as we're keeping sight of the openings so let's see I'm gonna move ahead a little bit to um, to talk about what I think our tasks are in this moment so one obviously is continuing to build the resistance to Trump and to try to bring in the widest layers of people into struggle and so I think there's actually a debate on the left, in a way, um, uh, about whether that what that really means. Because I think that there's sort of a cynicism, um, almost a failure, in my opinion, to capture the moment that exists right now. In other words, you know. This is bringing people who have never been to a protest, who are liberal, who have many different ideas that are not remotely, we need to absolutely overturn the system necessarily. There are people within the resistance who believe that now. Um, but I think we need to be open to bringing the widest layers possible because that's actually where our strength lies to fight the right. I think that uh, some of the debates around whether Trump is a fascist or not may seem a bit semantic, but I think it's actually important that we're clear that we actually do live in a country where at this point at least it's possible for us to protest in large numbers that we're not actually at the point where we're unable to do that and we need to seize the opportunity so that people are more in struggle and able to draw those conclusions and we can't be adventuristic there's been sort of a resurgence of ultra left and black bloc tactics in some areas that has been posed as one way to fight the right and there you know I think the focus is really we need to shut the right down anywhere that it's shows up, and that's really the end goal, regardless of the balance of forces, regardless of it's only a minority in struggle. I think our position as Marxists and the position that we actually need to win in this broader resistance is that it is more important, not that we've shut down the right-wing speaker, but that we build the widest forces on the left possible and build the confidence of masses of people to fight back, and that that's the basis on which we, um, if we're lucky, do shut down the right. But in the future, especially if there is a further rightward shift, it's not going to be based on um, a small minority that we actually shut down the forces of the right. It will be because we have built the forces of the left prior to that. Hey fam, what's someone who studies things under the sea called? Uh, an undersea researcher? Wrong. If you reckon you can do better than farm at Trivia, join the Out of the Blue team 
for our annual Radiothon fundraiser, Wednesday the 10th of May at Highlander Bar, 6pm. And get your tickets via the Out of the Blue Facebook page or search Out of the Blue on eventbrite.com.au. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. And you're back with Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Rebecca Langley on the line. How are you, Rebecca? Yeah, good, thank you. Good morning, Rebecca. Hi. Yeah, tell us, uh, you've been walking for a number of days now for the Walk for West Palpua. You started in Geelong. Tell us about the beginning. Yeah, it was amazing. We started down in Geelong, (coughs) sorry, uh, on Wednesday, and we started off with a a really great um, pancake breakfast at the Trades Hall. Um, which was put on by the Socialist Alliance. So that was really uh, nice. And then we raised the Morning Star flag. Uh, oh, lovely. At, yeah, at Trades Hall. And, yeah, then we took off from there. So how many people were there? Yeah. At that point, there were about 10 of us. Yeah. Great. And uh, so did you have your knapsacks on your back and... Uh, a flag and a banner or something? Yes, yep, we did. But that day it was a bit um, rainy, yeah. on and off, raining. So, yeah, we we uh, had our raincoats on and, yeah, but it was, that wasn't going to stop us. So. <laughs> Spirits were high. Yes, have you been camping? Uh, we camped last night, not, not last night, the night before, yeah, um, but the only night we were we were camping. The other nights we had organised uh, to stay in like community halls and yeah. So. Now you've you're doing this walk because uh, you're highlighting that the distance between West Papua and Australian territories is incredibly small. You know that we're on the doorstep of a, a um, ongoing genocidal. A situation in West Papua, but it's only seventy-three kilometres or so away from our doorstep. Yes. Yep. So the length of the distance between Geelong and where are you going to? We're finishing at Footscray, so we'll be having a big uh, party, welcome party at Footscray Community Arts Centre um, on Sunday. Oh, fantastic! What time would that be? That will start at two p.m. Yeah. Have so you had food, food and music? And, yeah. Have you had a chance to talk to any of the locals as you've been walking through their towns? Yeah, we have. So uh, we yeah we had the breakfast in Geelong, um, and then uh, we went to Karaya, uh, and it was really uh, great. We spontaneously uh, when we were in the morning that we were leaving there was an English class um, that was happening in the 
uh, community space that we were we had been staying at. So we, uh, yeah, we just did like a small little presentation to them and uh, yeah, and sang the song and yeah, that was really great. And there's been a lot of uh, people along the way that have been like tooting support and uh, yeah, it's like even one woman who stopped uh, stopped us on the road and said she'd heard about it and that she was really supportive. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, what we were doing. Yeah. Now, now, most people think of, uh, you know, Geelong to Melbourne or uh, the freeway. So you're clearly not going along the freeway. No, no, we're not. So what, what, tell us about the uh, the uh, uh, the plot of your walk. You know, tell us how you're going. You're obviously rediscovering uh, real rural Australia or real Victoria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we have for the last few days um, walked pretty much along the train line. Um, yeah, from Geelong. Oh, right. So uh, that's interesting, so, isn't it? Yeah, because there's... Uh, yeah, sort of dirt track roads along the train line. Yeah, right. Uh, so yeah, we were walking along there. Yeah, right. So you can um, you can get through all the way from there. Not not all the way, but yeah, pretty much. And just yeah, with fields on on either side, and yeah, it's been really nice. It must um, be a very nice sort of community building exercise too amongst you guys. Yes. Yeah, very much. Mm-hmm. Did uh, yeah. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that there've been a few, like quite a few people that have joined us along the way. So now there's probably about twenty five people. Um, yeah, that'll be leaving today uh, from Werribee, uh, and yeah, we'll we'll be. Yeah, it's it's been really good. Uh, and fresh because new people have joined each day um, and it's been, yeah, like you said, it's been a really uh, good opportunity because some of the people that have joined us haven't uh, been a part of the movement before. So it's been great to talk about, yeah, what's, what's happening Oh, that's really so. It's been effective. Effective. I yeah. mean, it's been effective. The other thing is, um, if people wanted to, because you you're asking people to come and join you, and that was one of the yep. things you'd like people to do. So, if people were interested in uh, joining you today, uh, and maybe tomorrow before they you reach Footscray uh, Art Centre down by the river, down by the Maribyrnong. Yep. That's right, isn't it? Um, yeah. How yep. would they? Which route are you taking? Uh, we will be walking, uh, I'm not sure exactly today, um, but we are happy to pick people up because we've got a few support cars. So, oh, right. um, if, if people want to catch the train, uh, yeah, then, and then meet us, uh, we've got some people who can pick you up. Oh, fantastic. Um, How would they get in contact with you? Uh, they can ring. Hang on, I, I've got the number. But I need to just 
smart. Use my phone. Hang on. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 make um uh funny noises, you know, da da da, bum bum, you know, um, waiting yeah. music, waiting music. <laughs> <laughs> That was funny because someone was uh, talking about uh, uh, some competition, you know, uh, and it was music, and one of the uh, categories was lift music. I wonder what lift music would. Be. Oh, horrible! It's well, then when you hear music and you don't like it, and you want, and it, you know, fades into the background, and you can't hear it because it's so boring. You call it lift music, and that's a an insult, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, by the by, <laughs> are you still there? Yes. Did you get it? So it's um, 0436. Yep. 017. 017. 429. 429. Okay, so that's 0436 017. Yep. 429. If you want to catch yep. the train down to Werribee and be picked up and then taken to the group that are walking uh, to. Melbourne, and so you you've been vindicated, haven't you? Take, uh, taking uh, the uh, discussion about uh, uh, West Papua's condition and taking it into the real world, you know, taking a walk from uh, that that's been an effective campaign strategy, hasn't it? Yeah, well, we uh, also got some good coverage, media coverage in Geelong, so uh, we were on the community radio. Uh, Pulse Community Radio down there, uh, yeah, on Wednesday morning. And then we had uh, some news coverage and a photographer from the advertiser came and took our photo. And, uh, oh, that's great. So we were in the newspaper as well. Well, that's good because yeah. it, it um, it's a big bang for buck in a country town or a country yes. city. Well, did you find that people didn't know very much about it? About West Palpuate? Uh, yes, yes. That, that's generally what we find. But um, they, it was interesting because it was getting a bit of coverage so then people knew like that we were there. So they'd heard about the walk, but they didn't necessarily know about West Palpuate. It's it's interesting because I vaguely remember that there was a poll done in the 90s about support for West Papuan independence and most people were in favour of it even though it was not a widely known issue. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, enjoy yourself. When when are you setting off today? Uh, 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock. You have a, did you have yeah. a sleep in and a, and a cook up for breakfast? <laughs> No, not a cook-up. We've been eating very well, though. Um, <laughs> and we'd like to, we'd like to thank yeah the people that have been supporting us in that way and providing the food, uh, yeah, for the walkers. So. Thanks, Rebecca, for talking to us. No worries. Thank you. See ya. That was Rebecca Langley from uh, who's walking uh, for West Papua, and uh, uh, yeah, fantastic stuff. Good idea. To bring yeah, to and you can see attention. them in Footscray. Yeah, that's right, Footscray, uh, two p.m. at the uh, art centre down by the Maribyrnong. What wouldn't? That's the best place to be on a Sunday, I'd have to say. It's a great river. You wanna hold my hand? You need to tell me something. I wanna hold your hand. I need to tell you something. You gotta 
May Day Workers' Day celebration, Sunday, May the 7th. Join us to protest the anti-worker policies of the federal government and the drive to war by the US administration. March with unions, Aboriginal organisations, community and ethnic communities and others. March from Trades Hall, corner of Victoria and Ligon Street, Carlton, 1.30pm, followed by a speaker's platform with entertainment, afternoon tea and a concert. Sunday, May the 7th, Trades Hall, 1.30 start. The May Day Committee is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast. There's lots of things going on. There is. Uh, so you must come and march on May Day. Yeah, that's uh, starting at 1. It's- yes, that's on Sunday, May 7th. So people are to assemble at Trades Hall uh, where there will be uh, a march but also rides and games for children. That's right. And that starts – it's a bit misleading. It actually starts uh, – one one um, time was 10 a.m. and the other time probably that I've been given is 11 a.m. I don't know why they're different, but 11 a.m. Mm. For, for a cert is when the various entertainments for children and stuff are – Perhaps we march off at one. Yeah, that's right. That's I, I've taken a while to get that all sorted out, but they collect at one o'clock at the corner of – uh, Victoria Street and Ligon Street at uh, Trades Hall, mm. and then the march is going to kick off. Uh, I've been told at about one thirty, but that that's the time frame. Uh, and apparently, there's going to be entertainments when you get back, and there's going to be a speakers' corner and stuff like that, which is what the uh, the uh, message was uh, said. But also, there's going to be uh, there's going to be a family day starting at eight. 11am before and after the march. So there's going to be rides and games for kids, breakfast and other activities. Mm. Entertainment for the young militants. Yes, that's right. Uh, and, uh, and and also there's the assembly and then there's a speaker's march, a uh, speaker's platform, and then the choir is going to, to sing. They've, and I must say that I think the uh, Trades Hall choir is getting better and better because uh, at the beginning you go, hmm, and then later on uh, I've been um, been quite impressed. It's actually quite interesting, and they're, they're getting uh, very interesting in their skill base. It's, it's quite good. Uh, there's a couple of other things, though. It's not just uh, May the 7th. Obviously, that's where the Melbourne uh, May Day uh, commemorations are centering on May the 7th, but, of course, May Day is actually May the 1st, and there are a couple of... Uh, Groups that are actually having things happen on May the 1st. So there's one at There's 12. one that's happening, um, assembling at the eight-hour day monument at 12pm, which is also, uh, which is just diagonal from Trades Hall, but it's technically on the corner of Russell and Victoria Street, Melbourne. Um, and that is the Melbourne Anarchist Club. And so they will be having their event um, in front of the eight-hour day monument. That's right. And the Asia-Pacific links people, Asia, uh, Australian Asia Workers Links are having an event at 5.30pm at State Library uh, Steps and uh, it's a no ifs, no buts, stop the attack solidarity rally with our brothers and sisters. And interestingly enough, of course, this is uh, uh, around the anniversary of the disastrous fire 
at uh, in Bangladesh at the uh, clothing Rana factory. Rana Plaza. Rana Plaza. And uh, if you couldn't think of a worse uh, event for workers uh, and uh, incredible telling nature of the power differential between workers and a boss class, Rana Plaza fire should put you in... Uh, mind of uh, what's actually happening in these days, not in the past, now. And so, of course, uh, the Asia, Australian Asia Worker Links people uh, are taking the opportunity to so- show solidarity on uh, May the 1st, 5.30pm on the State Library Steps. And the other day, yesterday, in fact, was the... Uh, International Memorial for uh, Workers mm-hmm. uh, Who Have Died uh, at Work. So, uh, yeah, uh, we shouldn't forget that we are linked. Yeah, there's been a number of deaths this year already. Yeah, that's for certain. Anyway, this is the week that was. A week solidarity, Bricky team listener, when we have celebrated the honing of true blue Aussie values, when on Train Killing Is Great Day, the ABC News in programming eulogising the greatness of the great true blue Aussie values of train killing, told us which politicians were in various parts of the world we had or are invading, including Big Supremo Malcolm Tuttle Bull in Iraq, encouraging our cream of true blue Aussie youth, brave young men and women in uniform, life of the party, fun to be with, love their families and dear little children, train killers, to keep up the good work, keep up their job of killing other families and dear little children who don't cherish our great true blue Aussie values. I raise this because the report pointed out Malcolm was encouraging our troops at war, it said at war, in Iraq, Afghanistan and Syria. What a proper celebration of train killing is great day to be at war in three different countries. And if our great protector, the US of the UN of the US of the world, gets its way, we should be able to add a few more theatres of war, as they call them, some sort of entertainment, obviously, to the list. And mustn't those train killers and the families of those train killed in Iraq and Afghanistan in the past 16 years feel it was all worthwhile as the so-called terrorists who weren't there until we invaded run riot. It's very clever, isn't it? The merchants of death flog all this merchandise, usually to both sides, and the US Arb and its acolytes, like True Blue Aussie, invade, which creates these disenchanted new enemies who weren't there until we invaded, who are a bit upset about our invasion, so the invasion goes on and on and on, and the merchants of death go on and on and on, flogging their merchandise to all comers and the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy, the good guys, that's us call for international condemnation of the disenchanted, the bad guys, if they use the weapons we flog them. Oh yes, all worthwhile. Yet, and I'm going to say something that may sound slightly unpatriotic of this great national day which honed those great cherished national values, yet I can't help feeling the glorious dead may well have preferred to have kicked on as the not-so-glorious alive. 
Now, we know those fleeing the invaders and the disenchanted have the audacity to expect the invaders to have some sympathy for them, some misplaced sense of entitlement as if we have something to do with their predicament. For goodness sake, we didn't choose to live where they chose to live and thus they emerge as no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. Surely it's not expecting too much to ask for the proper papers and ask where the queue is before you leave. Bloody irresponsible, that's what it is. But we now know it's even worse. We talked last week about what qualifications were required to become the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, and concluded on the tautological, a roaring idiot, a monumental moron, and unbelievably stupid. Well, apologies to the current qualifier, Peter Duffer. Sorry, Pete, for this week he showed he really is a man of acute intelligence because he's the only person in the whole world who knows these illegals are even more illegal. They're all pedophiles to boot. OK, OK, those on the spot say that's wrong, but what would they know? Pete knows. And I'm sure Pete also knows they, they the illegals, the pedophiles, are the sort of people who would resort to a whopping lie if they felt cornered by some minor considerations like facts. As a sort of celebration of train killing his great day over where much of it happened, the fight for Big Supremo in France saw the get rid of the illegals candidate maintain those cherished values honed on the slaughter fields. The pen is mightier with the sword. She waved her weapon like a modern Joan of Arc and then declared people should vote for her because she is not the leader of the party of which she is the leader and won't be the leader again until after she is elected. Although the analogy stops there because she plans, she plans to burn the illegals at the stake, human stake so to speak. And speaking of giant minds in government, when it comes to the economy, to the greatest little economic order, we've known for a long time the crippling burden on the economy, these welfare bludgers, the unemployed, single mums and a few single dads and people with disabilities and old bastards who selfishly, selfishly live on and on and on and equally selfish exploiters, many of the same abuses of the public purse who think a free health system means a free health system or free education means free education, although thankfully real free state education disappeared long ago, abusers who keep demanding public funds be wasted on public housing or public transport, bludges all, but now we know the reality is even worse than we knew, worse than we imagined. These people are the cause of bad debt in this country. The reason poor big economic gurus scuttled their moorlash son can't sleep nights worrying about how to cut the debt, slash government spending so all those budgets could be better off. Not creating bad debt which could be producing wealth as good debt. Good debt provided to the great corporate construction giants who on our behalf determine what infrastructure we need to provide that good debt to them, the proper role of the public purse. Wealth generating good debt, showing if more and more proof was needed just how evil are those welfare bludgers, those abusing free health, expecting their taxes to provide basic services. On that scuttle, then, we hadn't realised welfare and health, for instance, were a debt. We, we thought they were why we raised taxes and the Medicare levy in the first place, that if they weren't raising enough, then just increase them. 
That is the sort of ignorant economic thinking that has created this problem in the first place. This crippling false sense of entitlement by large sections of the riffraff. The expectation that paying taxes somehow entitles the taxpayer to some sort of return like basic services. These people never considered that those basic services cost money, and money doesn't just grow on trees. That's where good debt comes in, by providing those taxes to the great corporate practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all, who understand these things, then we are using those taxes to grow the country, to grow wealth, good debt. And we could provide even more good debt, even more progress and wealth and jobs and growth if we didn't waste so much on bad debt. At this point, I'd plan to ask Scuttle them as he searched for ways to cut debt slash government spending, whether he would seek savings through good debt or bad debt, but even I thought the question a touch unnecessary, because it gets even better. The good debt is so good, it's not even a debt. So calling it a good debt seems to be a problem or an economic misnomer or something. Scuttle them and the team won't even have to count it as debt, thus helping fix up the deficit stroke surplus problem they believe they have. Even if the long-haired commie greenie lots reckon a surplus is just taxes they paid that haven't been spent on the services they were supposed to be spent on, showing how ignorant they are when the wise now know those services only exacerbate bad debt. So all these big infrastructure projects proposed by the great corporates and funded by good debt won't even be debt, showing how qualified Scuttlebem is to be the big economic guru. And as the great corporate recipients of good debt generate more and more jobs and growth and wealth and productivity, the bludgers who lose their bad debt services will be better off anyway. Win-win. But, scuttled them, expanded his chest, the biggest good debt of all is the debt of gratitude the nation owes me. Good point, good point. The great practitioners who know so much more about all this than we mere economic mortals express that knowledge during the welcome visit here of USR Vice Big Supremo Mike Dollars and Pence, Westfeld the Workers Supremo Stephen Lowy than Lowe, obviously a brilliant practitioner of the greatest little economic order who worked his way to the top of his dad's financial property empire by, well, by being his father's son, speaking on behalf of great true blue Aussie corporations located in the U.S. of, told us U.S. of big supremo Donald Trample the poor slashing corporate tax rates would be good for true blue Aussie. Bit like the true blue Aussie banks putting up their interest rates when the U.S. of Fed puts up U.S. of interest rates. Thankfully, the same correlation doesn't apply when the U.S. of lowers them. And Stephen Lower Than Lowy said it would be even better for true blue Aussie if our government followed Donald and... Well, we do follow the US op into almost everything, particularly those aforementioned fun, fun, fun theatres of war. Follow Donald's example and slashed corporate taxes here, showing Stephen is a true man of the people, caring only for the disadvantaged both here and in the US of, where he now resides, presiding over the family empire. And finally, Westfield the Workers has an admirable history in the tax department. Or more correctly, in its money not quite reaching the tax department. Well, it would only be wasted on bad debt. Good morning. 
Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Testing, testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C... And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we've got Humphrey McQueen on the line. How are you, Humphrey? I'm all right and this autumn has finally reached Canberra. Oh, well, there you go. Someone, took a while. someone told me that uh, it's very hot. You have to have two sorts of clothes in Canberra. They just come back from Easter break there. Uh, very uh, hot during the day and very cold at night. That's what happens. Indeed, it does. Anyway, back to work, back to work. And this morning again, our two regular topics that we've been dealing with this for the last little while. Moving up to the 150th anniversary of Das Kapital on early in September this coming year. And I want to link that, of course, with the other great thing we've kept going at is what's happening to the world economy. And this time in relation to what's happening in the great Chinese economy and behind the wall of debt. So they're the couple of things I thought we should try. So you're going to take us back to uh, the days of... uh the writing and the publishing, the heady yes. days. Yes, there he was in February. I mean, we're now at the end of April, but I just want to slip back a bit and see what's, what he's been doing in 1867 up to this point. Um, if for, uh, for a bit of light relief, he reads his favourite um, author, or contemporary author at least, Henri de Balzac, and there's a, a very short novella called The Unknown Masterpiece, and it's very popular with artists because this poor, um, this poor visual artist has this idea that he's going to make the perfect painting, and he keeps painting it and painting it and painting it years and years, and in the end, there's nothing you can see. Uh, great warning to any author, and there is Marx running two years late, working on his manuscript. But then, glory days, on the second of April, eighteen sixty-seven bit over 150 years ago he says everything is ready now he wants to take it to the publisher in Hamburg but he doesn't have any money again his clothes and his watch are at the pawnbroker once more and once again he's rescued by his great friend Frederick Engels who sends 35 pound so off he goes to Hamburg uh, delivers the manuscript um, and then he goes to visit some other friends in other parts of Germany. And something very interesting happens to him while he's there. One of the um, one of the German cabinet ministers approaches him and offers him a job, saying, we need men with your intelligence to help us build a new Germany. Marx contests, you know, treats this with great contempt, of course, uh, but it does indicate something to him. He's been a bit worried as to what what's going to happen when the government censors know that this big book is coming. Uh, Because his previous book, he feared the censorship very much and he cut a whole chapter out of the contribution to the critique. And everybody, I think, who knows anything about Marx knows that to the contribution to the critique, there is a very famous introduction, a little bit there, where Marx talks about the base and the superstructure. Um, Now, what's intriguing about um, those were really only two pages. There's no mention of the class struggle. And the reason is, of course, that Marx thought, oh, if I put the class struggle in, in 1859, the whole book will get censored. 
But by 1867, this offer from the German government leads him to think everything is going to be all right. That's very so, interesting because that's around the same time as the American War of Independence, isn't it? it well, well, it's also perhaps a bit more importantly that there's been the war that the Germans have had to, well, well, parts of Germany have had with them. Um, to take over some of the, uh, the close by areas. In fact, I think, if I'm right, 1866-67 is the war with the Austrian Empire. And they oh, take yeah. it that Which way. then so, takes us on to the Crimean War. Go on, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, so, anyway, there we are. Um, but on next Friday, which is the 199th anniversary of Marx's birthday, ah. was the day in which they gave him the first of the galley proofs. So there was a real birthday present for him. Um, so these little bits, and later in the year, just as we come up to September, I think, um, I'll say a bit more about what happens to the book between now and final publication. And there are a few surprises, uh, <laughs> even, even at this later stage. Now, you, you wanted to uh, then go on in this chat about uh, following on to your other main topic of interest at the moment, is uh, you were talking about uh, dust capital and its potential predictive qualities. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it tells us so much about what had happened to the origins of capitalism. I think everybody knows that. And people do think, oh, Marx made some you know, very, very famous predictions about what was going to happen. Some people say, well... None of them took place. Some of them say, well, some of them did and some of them didn't. But what can it tell us if we want to look at what's happening to the global, um, to the global economy today? And specifically, what can it tell us about what's going on behind the Great Wall of Debt in China? Um, now, if you open all three, the first three volumes of Capital, there are nine mentions of China in about 3,000 pages. So you're not actually going to get much guidance, are you, to, to, you know, as to what you might find out's happening there today, I think. However, there is one thing, I think, that we take out of this in relation to China, um, and specifically, but, but more generally, as to how Marx thought about things. He's very careful not to lump China in with the rest of Asia, uh, he's always drawing very fine distinctions, even when he's comparing something like how the English are invading both the old Indian empires and what's going on in China at the same time. He says, well, yes, the same thing is happening to them from the outside, but the effect it has is completely different because the structures of Indian society and of Chinese society are, are also completely different. So what he's reminding us of, and this is, I think, the important point for anyone who wants to be any kind of historical materialist, you're always looking at the specifics. And yes, there are big and important things that Marx tells us about the nature of capitalism, which are always going to be there. The most important, of course, is you've got to exploit the workers. You can't get away from that. But how the exploitation happens varies in time, it varies from one place to another. Can, can I just jump in here? Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, I know that uh, you want to talk about uh, the debt and uh, how it relates to its GDP and all the rest of it, yeah. uh, which is 
pretty startling, the figures. Uh, but I do want to ask you something. Um, it was point, I went to see uh, Paul Keating last night, and one of the things that he pointed out, or in his view, was yeah. that, um, and you, you know, you, I'd like your view on this, uh, his view was that uh, China was actually at the, uh, was number one, basically, because if you looked at it from the point of view of uh, the amount of population you have, the amount of population you have and uh, the uh, amount of productivity from all those people that before the Industrial Revolution, then uh, China was, you know, top of the pops. But once the Industrial Revolution happened, or whatever you want to call it, uh, the um, uh, a tiny place like uh, England could take ascendancy. Uh, and now he reckons that uh, with the... Uh, change in um, technologies and uh, also the and globalization as opposed to globalism that uh, we're now it's kick-started again and that China is actually returning to its rightful place does that make any sense to you well the first bit does yeah um, I mean there is a great argument as to how but I mean certainly the size of the Chinese economy um, before 1800 would have put it far in advance of, of, of anywhere else in the world. Um, there's been a whole argument of recent times as to why they then fell behind. The question as to how England got ahead... Oh, I, I see. I mean, I've spent... No, I don't want to go into this now, but I've spent the best part of the last 10 years trying to work out what the origins of capitalism actually are. And I'm trying. I keep saying to myself, like poor old Marx with his two years running late. Well, I'm running two years late too. <laughs> I don't know that I'm ever going to get there and finish this, this terrible manuscript that's driving me mad. But the Chinese question in there is something else that I've been looking at as to where they are. And there is great dispute among the experts in all of this is to how far China is likely to be able to continue on the advance that it's um, that it certainly had. Um, there are a whole lot of arguments that say if you know, thirty years ago, Japan was going to take over the world. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then something went wrong, and people are saying, well, the thing that went wrong can happen to the Chinese as well. Although Marx, I think, would have repeated his point and said the internal structure of Japan is completely different to the internal structure of the Chinese economy. And one of the things they talk about, oh, there's 1.5 billion Chinese. But the thing to remember is you've got to look at what the effective demand of that is. And you're really only dealing with perhaps 250 million people who are in what we could call the truly modern economy, have this effective demand to buy and spend. And the big problem they have one of the big problems is diverting from an export economy into an internal demand economy. Oh, interesting, uh, yes. Yeah, and I mean, if they can't do that, I mean, that's something the Japanese did in the 1960s. Um, they, I mean, they really began to put the two things together then. Uh, all the attempts by the Chinese at the moment, and we'll get round to some of these and the obstacles they face... Um, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't, I mean, you know, I'm certainly not going to sit here this morning and say, no, the Chinese are, you know, are going to go down the gurgler. Um, you know, they are never going to be a major economic power. This is just a kind of slight, you know, kind of you know, 
increase an aberration you know, over, over 20 years or something and then they'll flatten out again or that they're going to take over the world um, you've got to look much more closely at this and as you say one of the frightening things when you do begin to look at this is how huge the internal debts are um, and you know and and, and how how they manage how are indeed they're going to cope with this because people have been sounding alarm bells for quite some time about this and now I think as I try and follow it and I'm, I mean I can't do this the internal experts I can only follow what other people are saying about it but a number of people who were saying look it's okay uh, they'll be able to manage this more and more of them are saying this is getting worse and worse and we are facing uncharted territory there is a crunch coming uh, People say, well, the crunch will be a total disaster. It'll be like 2008 with the American economy. Other people say, no, it won't be quite as bad as that. But it's not going to, you know, something is going to have to happen, um, is what they're all, what they're all beginning to say. Um, now, when you look at the figures, it's very difficult to think how some kind of crunch isn't going to happen. In the last 12 months, Government spending went up by 20%. In China? In China. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, that, you know, I mean, it is, you know, I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling to think of what that's, you know, of, of what, that, what that kind of advances is happening. And it's why the Chinese economy is able to keep going. It is not being driven by its own internal demands. It is that you've got this massive constant intervention by the government to keep the economy um, kind of powering along. Um, it was their intervention that kept the economy going, the world economy going in 2009. Um, I mean, the Australian, we would have gone down the tubes had that big boost they put into their economy in 2009 not kept the, the demand for iron ore and coal going out of here as well. Now, that's a big problem that they face. The ratio of, of all of their debt to the total economic output um, was about 160 in 2008. As a result of the stimulus, it went to 210 by, by 2012. And now it's gone up again to 260%. That is, that the amount of national debt in, in every area compared to the national economy, is now 260. Now, I mean, So what is, you're saying is that it's doubled the amount that's going out, the full amount, and then it's a plus, it's double, yeah. uh, uh, one and a, a third of, well, yeah. a third, one and a third more. Yeah, And okay. it's about the worst of, you know, I mean, there are very few countries in the world um, that have, that have any that have a ratio that's even worse than that. The Japanese, their, their near neighbours, were probably as bad and possibly even slightly worse because they've been trying to pump up their economy as well. Well, I mean, this is uh, like China has two uh, currencies, so it's got the yuan and it's got mm. this other domestic uh, currency, which I can't remember the name of it. But uh, people prefer to operate in the UN, uh, UN uh, sort of uh, market. So, um, I, I mean, you know that idea that a country can actually produce as much money as it likes, really. 
Uh, <laughs> although the value um, is a different issue altogether, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, because they are such a huge trading country, yeah, because right. the economy is driven by their exports, the, the external value of their currency does work its way back into, into the domestic economy. Right, you yeah. can't... Yeah, yes, you can for a while keep these two things separate, and, and I mean, and people do it all the time. And I mean, we used to, it was the standard procedure where the Australian government would say to protect to protect the farmers, they'd say, well, we're going to keep the um, the value of the Australian currency here, uh, and that will help the farmers to to be able to export. Well, that goes on for a while, but it works its way back. I mean, there is you know you can't you can't keep doing that. If 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 the if the real things you're putting out into the world um, are losing their value, or if another part of the economy—that's what happened here—and it's the kind of thing that's happened to the Japanese—is that you know, we had the agricultural sector, and then from 1960, the huge amount of aluminium and coal and iron ore that we began to export just meant that the whole value of the Australian currency was being shifted, so that you know of uh, that. Of, so that by 1971-72, uh, this whole attempt to control the exchange value had simply blown apart, and that's that's what the Japanese, uh, sorry, that's what the Chinese problem is, um, that they have tried to control it, but um, it's um, you know all the pressure on them to say, well, you're actually cheating by keeping the value of the currency down or things. Yeah. So so it's a bit like um, our treasurer saying there's good debt and bad debt. <laughs> uh, well, well, there is. You know, he's not wrong about that. Uh, <laughs> and some of the Chinese debt is doubtless the kind of debt that's going to repay itself. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the area in which the Chinese economy has claimed to have grown in the first quarter of 2017, um, where is it? Well... It's in the real estate area. You know, 9% growth in the real estate, 12% in the, um, you know, in, I mean, some of that's commercial, but 12% of it is going into, um, into residential accommodation again. And that just adds to the existing oversupply. Um, and they've been trying to control it. And one of the things, oh, it's a totalitarian regime, they can make, the, well... They can certainly put you in jail if you say things you don't like. What they've never been able to do for the last 10 years is to control the economy in the way they want to. They keep imposing these rules and nobody obeys them because there's too many people in too many areas of China are able to make lots of money by refusing to say, by refusing to follow what the central government says we want you to do. So they put curbs on, on the amount of housing money that should be there and it seems to have virtually no effect. They keep on producing more and more of these residential areas. So, so do you do you think that um, uh, China is the weak spot in capitalism? Is that the point of this? Oh, I think it's, it's certainly a weak spot. Okay. Very, and because of its size, because of its importance to where it now fits, because it, it feeds cheap goods into the United States, um, it demands things from the rest of the world, so that if the Chinese weren't there doing what they're able to do, then we would all be in for a very, very bumpy ride indeed. Um, I mean, the other problem they face is they've got excess capacity in, in the production of, of, you know... I mean, they've got an oversupply 
in the residential market. Well, that's bad enough. But they've got this massive oversupply in their capacity to produce a number of things, including through their steel mills. Now, what they did, you know, from the 1950s onwards, they started to build a lot of steel mills. Now, they are now, you know, well, they're pretty inefficient, they're pretty old, and the government's been trying to close them down. Uh, but again, because of the regional areas and all the local corruption and things, people are saying, well, we're going to keep them going a bit longer. But, uh, but in recent times, they do seem to have had some success in closing some of these old ones down. However, while they were doing that, the central government was saying, we're going to build new and very efficient ones, which they've done. They've now come on stream. The Chinese are now producing more steel than they were before they closed the old ones down. And they're doing it more efficiently, so they're cheaper. This is one reason why the real estate boom can continue in there, because some of the steel that goes into real estate isn't as expensive. And it's also why they're having to dump it around the rest of the world. Yeah, so they have this massive, massive, massive excess capacity. Yeah. And if, you know, I mean, if Marx says one thing about where crises points come within capitalism, one of them is that capitalism overproduces. It gets excess capacity. And, you know, and until it can absorb that, until there's effective demand to really absorb all of that, and the rest of the world's got, you know, effectively excess capacity in the steel sector as well. It's a stupid uh, system, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, it, I mean, it is because it is a dynamic system. You know, I mean, the reason why capitalism gives rise to all these problems is that it because because it because it does change all the time, because it is expanding, and indeed it has to, to be itself, it has to expand. There is, you know, it, it isn't like slavery or serfdom, where you know, they can just chug along as they were, and it really doesn't matter to the system. With capitalism, if it's not getting bigger, then it's in serious trouble. So these are, the, I mean, these are some of the problems they face. They've got these excess capacities they've got to get down. They've got to cut back on all of the national debts and the other debts they've got. They've got to redirect themselves away from export into domestic consumption. And then there's this huge problem of the inequality in the distribution of income in the society, which we haven't even touched on. You can see one side of it. There are 35 billionaires in the People's Congress. It's in a communist country, we yeah. are told. That's millions. Know. Billionaire means millions of millions. I'm, yeah, uh, no, uh, no, no, that's the old billion. Oh. The current phrase for a billion is a thousand. Oh, uh, right. It's only nine noughts. Um, but it, it's, it, 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 it's certainly larger than you or I are ever going to see, isn't it? Yeah. But the but distribution this is, of it there. Yeah, but this um, is what uh, Marx was good at uh, showing, isn't it? That uh, capitalism is disaster prone. Well, it is disaster prone, and it's also its proneness is, of course, to distribute income upwards. Oh, yes. And that's certainly what's been happening in the Chinese. If you go back to 1982, um, the total share that went to all workers then was about 54%. It's now settled down at about 46.5. It's down 7%. And this huge advance in the Chinese economy, the workers are getting seven, you know, a you know, they're getting substantially less uh, as the whole working class than, than they were getting in 1982. Uh, the 10%, of course, are now taking 25% of the total. Uh, so they are in line with all of those figures as to what's happening about the ill distribution of income. And the problem for capitalism 
as many of them are now pointing out about what's happening in the United States and elsewhere, is that if the rich get richer, where's the demand for all of these things that the excess capacity is going to produce? So that in order to kickstart the economy, they're saying this massive inequality that's taken over and it's going to get worse if you redistribute the whole tax system again, this is a real way of... It's a kind of obstacle to the further expansion of the system. So it's death by greed. Well, well, I mean, it's partly... It's not just greed. It is that the system, the very nature of the system, which has to accumulate so that the corporations have to be taking in more and more of this so that they can accumulate, but that just produces more excess capacity. So there is this circular, this kind of truly vicious circle within their own system. Um, we'll have to leave it there, Humphrey. We'll have to leave it there, and we'll be back, um, and we'll keep, we'll keep reading Capital in the meantime. OK, let's. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. And we do. We have to go. We're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, but there's a couple of things I want to tell you. One is that uh, news that uh, Westpac has caved to public pressure and have ruled out funding Adani's coal mine. Apparently, uh, yesterday, the uh, Westpac released their new climate change policy, which has ruled out funding any projects in new coal basins, this means they will not fund Odani. Mm. That's a, a good little win there. Win. That's a no. I think it's a big win mm. for the survival of this continent. Really, I mean, disaster prone capitalism and its disaster proneness. <laughs> Goodness me! Um, there was something else. Oh yeah, there was. Um, there's been an ongoing uh, battle. Oh yeah, May May the first isn't just May Day. It's the uh, day that the new. Uh, Tram and train schedules and rationalisation, Yarra Tram's rationalisation of our public transport is going to happen in the hands of a private company. Uh, hopefully in the future it will be wrested back to the public, but it appears that um, it's uh, uh, fewer fewer um, tram, trams on the 86, I can report, uh, 86 line, which is completely packed. And apparently the tram... Line 8 is disappearing completely, being replaced by two other tram lines, except they already exist, which I think is pretty hysterical. I just thought it was such a fantastic promotional activity to say that you're getting rid of a whole tram line. Bureaucraties. And, <laughs> and then say that you're going to replace it with two others, but which they already exist. So that's a loss, one assumes. But anyway, I... I, I uh, think that you probably should listen to City Limits, which is uh, Kevin Healy's program in the early part of the week to find out more details about how it affects you. Anyway, we're going to leave. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go out with Hives and Honey in Quieting but Beyond something or other. But anyway, it's a local piece, piece of music.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.